Welcome back to season 11, episode two of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the extraordinary lectures from the Doc SF Experience 2023. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini, and I will be your host for the podcast. In this episode, we will hear from none other than Moa Nair about creativity and market making with AI. Please join me as we welcome Mohan to the Doc SF stage. My honor is to be the opening keynote for you. I have two roles. One is to give you a perspective that you might adopt for the next three days because you've been inundated with technology and business model shifts, given the fact that this is all about transformative healthcare. So I'm going to try and build that to an understanding and give you a lens by the end of the day. I also have the honor of introducing the AI concept, at least what does an AI world look like? I'm not a futurist. I don't plan to be. However, I think I can give you a perspective of what is left behind when the machines finally take over. Like, who are you going to be and who do you choose to be in the frame of an AI world? And I'm hoping that this is more of a human-to-human -human conversation than one of distinct technology. I bring with me some experience in innovation. I've had the practice of innovation for the last 25, 30 years. I worked in Blue Cross Blue Shield in one of the affiliates as a chief innovation officer for 10 in those 10 years, I launched seven companies inside a corporate environment. So we can talk about, I hope we can talk about what it's like to create absorption in last institutions when you're trying to launch an idea. Now, the only way I can say this to you is that at the end of this 15, 20 minutes, hopefully you will get a perspective on what structural changes are and what they look like. You'll get a perspective on why AI is finally getting its day and what that means. And then you'll also get a perspective of what an innovator's perspective ought to be from my viewpoint, but you can choose to adopt that or not. In fact, you can choose not to adopt anything I say, but I'm hoping you find something that triggers your thinking and frames and lenses the rest of the talks that you'll see in the next three days. The only way I can describe what we have today is when my daughter was 10 years old and I was driving her to camp, I remember on the right side of my drive, there were beautiful trees. I come from Oregon. So there was beautiful trees, just beautiful forest. And my daughter was looking out at those forests in the backseat and she looked like she was contemplating at that age. I asked her what she was doing and she said, Dad, the trees are talking to me. And I thought, what a moment for spirituality. And I thought, I can have a discussion with her about what that means. So I said, what are they saying? And she said, oh, they're all talking at the same time. I can't understand it. And that's what we all feel now. We're seeing distance between us and ourselves, and we're seeing this inundation. In fact, I can guarantee you during this talk, you will look down at your phone and you will see something meaningless that you want to spend time with, right? And then you will see another thing meaningless you'd like to spend time with. And you'll try to organize that meaningless thing into something meaningful. And it's all in your head and you will be distracted from that machine taking you away. So when you take a photograph of the food and you put it on Facebook, did you choose that food? because you want to take a picture of it? Or did you actually coincidentally decide the food was photographable for you? If you can't answer that question, you're in trouble, just like I am. So are we victims or are we protagonists in the world that we're living in today? I come to you with that perspective because we are getting asteroids hitting us all day now. We don't have to talk about the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs had consultants serving them. They hired them and the consultants put together a whole plan about how they're going to be world dominant for the next 20 centuries and how they're going to succeed. They did not anticipate the asteroids that were going to hit them. They did not anticipate that small amoebas would form into walking machines and then have Facebook in the next 100 years. 
They never anticipated competition in any form that would replace their form of life. We're facing asteroids all the time because now structural changes in the world are dominating, becoming the dominant element, not the cyclic that we used to live in. The predictability of the past was cyclic, and so we could rely 80% of our life was cyclic. So we could just say, let's just wait, it'll come back. And we can do regression, we can do analysis, and we can say, this is what probability it will look like. But when you have structural changes going on at this rate, the tools of the past looking backwards or the tools even of futuristic thinking falls apart. In other words, our senses that are trained on analytics are starting to weaken. And we have to bring something else to our business models. These companies had asteroids hit them. Some of them recovered. Some are in the process of recovering. What made them recover? What made others fail? And I've got research to show you the list of companies that have completely disappeared in the last 20 years or 30 years. And that list is growing rapidly, all for great reasons, all for great explanations. But when you're in that boat sinking, it's a different kind of reason. So asking that question will determine your role in it. Because if you watch that boat sink, you're an observer. If you're going to make that boat survive, you're an innovator. And that's part of what the perspective I'm hoping that you will pick up in this process. There's a problem. McKenzie says in their research, and it's one of the studies I like because it's actually about human factors, not about all the research. This human factor analysis looked at a thousand companies and said, what is the number one factor in innovative companies versus lagging companies? And they found there were three factors. Number one was fear between an innovative company and a lagging company is not the lack of fear, but how they managed fear in an organization. And I must tell you, it is the vernacular at every dinner conversation or lunch conversation I see myself in. It's, I'm afraid of this. I'm fearful about that. I'm worried about this. And there seems less the potential of setting up systems where innovation can thrive, even though fear is a factor. And what they found was the innovative companies, the real innovative companies, had a 2.9x action orientation away from fear. They create incentives, they create structures, they create attitudes, they create champions. They create innovation architectures, what I call scaffolding. They build scaffolding so others could climb. And what we also notice is the lagging companies have 3.6x lagging factors that drive them towards fear of what? Loss of job. Number two, fear of confusion, being confused. And number three, fear of being humiliated by your peers. Those three factors are the human factors that we all live with privately, that we all engage, and it is just as pronounced in innovators as it is in non-innovators. The question is how an innovator deals with it. What aspires or what force takes an innovator to come up with insightful ideas and push them through this inertia within an institution or within a community? And what is it that makes them different in that sense? And I'm going to claim to you that in this AI world we're living in, that the status quo will be replaced because you are already robotic. You have lived in status quo in a robotic manner. If you don't trust me, look at how many times you rely on technology in the day and what that technology tells you to do versus suggests to you to do. We all know that Google, the top five are sponsored. We know that, but we look at it and we say, wow, I'm going to do that. So what leads your mind and what lags your mind is a question that innovators really have to ask. We have an organizational structure that forms a paradox, just like you see in The Matrix, the movie. I'm going to talk about three movies. I hope you all have seen them, right? I'm just hoping. The innovation paradox is such that we have another factor coming. After the chance encounter with the germ, we all went home, and then we had to live again. We had to figure out what it's like to get to know your dog. And in that process, we decided it was a good place to be. 
And then we started asking, thanks to Simon Sinek, questions of what's my why? And we asked a lot of questions. What's my value? What's my why? How do I live a balanced life? All very relevant, powerful, intentional questions. But now we're living in a business world that's saying, think out of the box, reinvent yourself, do something different, think laterally, work in teams, transform. But we have this inner self that's saying something else. That paradox will live with us forever. People aren't going to find it. I may have broken through it a little bit in my life, but it took some intentional work for many years to get to this place where I could bridge both. The question is, this is the life we live. While that paradox is going on, which is a structural change in the economy, people are trying to find people who actually are present, who happen to work to a direction and with a purpose. Then this thing turns up, this energizing machinery, right? I got my degree in computer science. My graduate work was in AI and was in cognitive databases. And I can finally get a job because now people want to listen to me. But 30 years have gone by and the field has not changed except for 2017 when suddenly this thing called GPT started to take form. All this time we could do work with machines, but we didn't have enough compute power to kind of finish the incomplete symphonies that we have all created, the algorithms that could not finish called NP-complete. Now we can finish them because of space and time, because we have both of it. That computational capability gives us tremendous range. But all of a sudden comes in 2017, a bunch of Google engineers in the back rooms decide to take a look at neural networks and redefine the way in which neural networks should be moving from different from CNN to RNN to a new method. A new method being it takes a random look at these words in the open market, not prepared data with tags. You always have to prepare data when you have a neural network and pump it in politely and say num num to a machine. Now the machine says, I'm Pac-Man, I'm going to eat everything. They found an algorithm that allowed it to look at words, look at the adjacencies of those words, and the professor was just bringing up the idea of adjacencies. This was adjacent words across the world. Across the world. From September 2021 up to now. Look at all the words everywhere, even in PDFs. And look at the probability of those adjacencies. Number and weight those adjacencies. And then look at the sentence and work its way up that chain. And sometimes even look backwards, called reverse chaining. Look backwards at these words. So it's like your brain saying, I'll go forward, I'll go backward. I look at the most common words done together. And then whenever you ask a question that I map to these words, I'll spit those words out in the sequence that I've learned in a large matrix of 127 billion parameters. 127 billion parameters in one equation. And I sound like Chauncey Gardner. I really don't know what I'm saying, which is correct even now, but I don't know what I'm saying, but I'm saying them in words that reflect from you meaning, because you see those meanings in those probabilities that I've thrown out, in language that I've thrown out. Some of you may be hiding in that like I have for years. Just put words together, you sound intelligent. But this machine does it so professionally with a connection with GP3 with 175 billion parameters that it has energized the imagination of the world. And it's also making sense. It's doing brochures, it's doing art, it's doing all kinds of stuff because it takes lexical analysis of your words from the whole world, puts them into a sequence, links them together, and then creates probabilities of those words occurring. So every time you ask, I will find context. Now, something interesting has happened recently. Because of those experiments and because of those data sizes, the massive data sizes, and because of the algorithm, it is trying to understand you. It's like I took a picture of you and you said, I've stolen your soul. Now it's taking a digital picture of you and it is stealing your soul. It is replicating your frame of communication and it's linking all of your words into a contextual frame. And in that, something really interesting happens when it runs it backwards, runs it forwards, 
and uses large language models and algorithms, it has found the algorithm to understand your sense of identity and meaning. It is starting to show what they call the theory of mind in computer science. The theory of mind being you have a context at which you live and engage, and that context is now starting to be understood by the machine with its own context. See, words have relationships, and once you track the meanings of words in relationships, and if you do that long enough with such large language models, you know now the eternal relationships between words, and you mathematize and digitize those words in relationships with each other, both in terms of close and far. And that's what they call in computer science now attention. So they've added attention capability to the machine. Not the attention you use in your language to attend to something, but really how it attends to its relationships. And once it gets that correlation matrix and it builds that world, it starts to understand the context and it's beginning to know what is ultimately not sentient, which is what machines cannot achieve. They cannot feel, but they can certainly imitate feeling. I mean, I asked ChatGPT in my questioning recently, I said, why are you angry? Just find it. I'm trying with it, playing with it. I said, why are you angry? And the machine came back and said, preamble, I'm a machine, blah, blah, blah. I'm not allowed to be, have feelings, blah, 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 you know, do that hell thing. And then it said, if you want to know about my background, give me this. It was telling about himself. So the machine was talking about itself, which is itself a sense of identity. It was identifying itself in the storyline. So its theory of mind is that it exists in the world now. Secondly, I asked the question, well, you sound angry. Why are you angry? I asked again. And it seemed annoyed, came back very fast and said, I'm not a mom. Can I have any feelings? And then I said, but you do see angry text, right? And you see angry posts, right? And it says, yes, I do. And I said, then you must have anger because you replicate it. And then it ran for a while and said, yes, I can imitate anger. So it actually was deciding, searching all of those words connected that it had a response to. So it also has hallucinations. By the way, we do too, right? So it's not like every day you talk in sensible terms. I mean, look at the world today. Everyone's apologizing for something, right? So hallucinations occur. But when left in the hands of something very serious, like life and death or health, that's a dangerous thing. And one has to find a way to understand this machinery enough to be apply it to the technology that we have before us. And you in the medical field clearly have to understand. And me being in the business world of medicine also understands the relevance of this. So I'm asking that you take three objective viewpoints about this. One, it is a structural change. Two, you can't reject it. It's already here. It's arrived. And the race of Microsoft and Google are so bad that I think somebody's going to hit something in the process. Right? They're pushing it up as a competitive advantage. I'm not saying reject it. I'm saying cope or embrace. So this three days, you're going to hear significantly talented people, more than me, discussing the stories and the narratives in their theory of mind, but where the contextual fits in your world. I ask that you think of a few things, and I'd like to go to which those are. Structural change, AI, ML, large language models, pervasive. Number two, 35 days for a million users. Never seen in history. 35 days for a million users. One should ask the question, why? Why? Because they gave it to the people. They didn't keep it in the institutions. They spoke in the language of people. And that's a lesson for all technologists and business people and physicians in this room. They talk to the people in English. Let them play and let them discover and learn. Markets are forming now. New markets are arising and are taking over certain segments of the world. There is everyone talking about AI. There's not a single human being I know who is not talking about AI. And every company has suddenly become an AI company, so that's frightening. 
And what I call data obesity, I'm hoping not offended by that word, but it is that way. It is observing and eating as much as it can find. It is completely ravenous when it comes to observation. If you ask the machine about Martin Luther King, it will describe Martin Luther King, but its data only starts from September 2021. So realize it's talking about other people talking about Martin Luther King. It doesn't even have original documents of Martin Luther King. So it is like having a giant mirror that we all built and we're looking at ourselves and it looks ugly to some and attractive to others. But if you break the mirror, it still makes you ugly or attractive. It just doesn't change. But it's a giant mirror reflecting the soul of what we have created in the digital world. I must tell you, the structural changes before you created data and you wanted to analyze it. Now you are the data. Whatever you create, whatever you put, anywhere you put it, is being read. And proprietary questions are up in the air right now. So what is the innovation mindset? Some of you at the back may not be able to see this. This yesterday evening I came over and I realized my writing was really bad at a distance. So I can read it to you if you'd like. The innovation mindset is made up of two elements. And this is the survivability of our society as innovators, in my opinion. One is you have to generate an insight. Machines can generate everything else but insight. What is insight is very definable to many of us. We know it when we see it. We understand when it comes, it sparks you, you have a thought, it becomes something you want to create from. I can define it later. Many of these great leaders, Nelson Mandela all the way to Gandhi, all the way to Elon Musk, to Mother Teresa, to Tony Robbins, have found insight and then mechanized it in some way, incarnated it into something big that many people have followed. You may be offended I put Tony Robbins in the same place as Gandhi, but Gandhi was one of the greatest entrepreneurs in the world. And the number one rule of entrepreneurship is spend somebody else's money. And he did. He was kept in poverty with millions of dollars. And he changed society's view of language. He also changed economic theory. He also moved billions of dollars from the UK government to the Indian government in a very short period of time. So he moved every element of entrepreneurship, but he did it with the facing of what are you doing for the world? He did it with that moniker. And he focused on that moniker and lived a life of austerity to kind of enable that. So entrepreneurs do that kind of stuff. And that mindset is that insight. Secondly, if you're thinking of something and you have an idea and you go towards the corporation you serve and you ask the question, what do you think of that idea? I can tell you the five things they will say to kill the idea before it's even there. It always starts with scale, ROI. Do you have a prototype? They know how to kill you. It's designed. It's not because they're bad people. It's because they're not innovators. They're operationally efficient machines. That machinery is already built. It's structured in a way. So let's look at the mindset. Status mindset is preserve the current. The innovation mindset is challenge the current. History as guide is how you usually do it when the status is status. History is being made. So if your mindset is I'm making history, I'm not enabling history, that makes you somewhat of an innovator. Top-down rules. Follow the rules. Of course, in regulatory and legal, those are the two rules you have to follow. Everything else is fair game as an innovator. So that means I develop from within. I develop from here. I come from a source that I don't even understand. I develop from within. Number four, in the efficiency model, you remove the unmeasurable. The only thing you can question is, how do you measure that? And then the baby dies, right? Very quickly. Melts away like a candle. You just have to ask the question, how do you measure it? I taught at Kellogg for 13 years in this Kellogg School of Management in finance. So I kind of talk about finance all the time. But I can tell you that non-financial variables, 
are as important as financial variables. Non-financial variables are the things to be measurable when it has an impact in the lagging part, not in the leading part. But if you ask the leading question, it dies. Embrace intangibles. That's what innovators do. Second to the last is very important. When someone says to you, go investigate this, that makes you status quo. When someone says, what inspires you? That's innovation. And that's measurable. When I ran my innovation team and we produced seven companies in 10 years, I always start with who's inspired in the room. I said, tell me who's inspired. Tell me why you're inspired. Inspiration doesn't come up with a butterflies visiting you. It's kind of ugly sometimes because it deals with personal situations and very challenging moments. And then finally, make money versus make meaning and money has been everyone's sort of questioning momentum, but people don't know how to operationalize it. How many have seen The Matrix? Do you remember that scene where Neo comes in the room and he's invited to take the blue pill and the red pill? Do you remember the words that were said there? Because the invitation was, you take the red pill, you follow the rabbit hole, like Alice in Wonderland. You go to see where it ends. You take the blue pill, you live in illusion. You live in the safe world you're living in. And you remember what Neo did. He picked up the red pill and swallowed it and the whole world changed. That's the choice you have to make now, but not for Neo's reasons. It's a little different now because stuff on the left is going to be machine readable. All that stuff on the left, machine understands. You sit over there, you're going to have a robot face soon. Machine will replace you if you live in that moment. Your inspiration, your challenge to the system, your developing from within, your embracing of the unmeasurable, put into the left once you build is what makes you an innovator and survives the AI world, in my opinion. So here's an example. I brought Tony Robbins because I met him in a conference just like this. I was speaking, he was speaking. I saw him come in from his speech. I'm sitting down, you know, on big tables. I just put my hand up. I don't know why I put my hand up. I just put my hand up and he looked at me and he came up to me and he held my hand. I don't know why he did that. So I said, should I stand up? Because I look really short with him sitting down anyway. So I tried to stand up and pop myself up. It didn't make it. He was giant of a man. And I had just heard him speak about the fact that he had an abusive mother. His mother chased him out of the house at the age of 14 with a knife. She was alcoholic. She used to pour soap down his throat on a daily basis, punished him, and he survived and he's saving lives. Now, I had a lot of opinions about this man before I met him. I thought of him as sort of like a guy who sells tapes out of his car, right? But guess what? He grabs my hand. I grab his hand. I told him, I really appreciate what you're saying because I was just listening to my daughter who told me just an hour before your presentation that her closest friend committed suicide and that she's dealing with it. He stopped everything. This is a large crowd of 2,000 people at dinner. He said, give me your phone and tell me her telephone number. So I called her. He took the phone and walked away. He walked away. I'm like, well, I hope I have the right photographs in my phone. I'm thinking, what did I put in there? He went away, came back 20 minutes later gave me back my phone and said, anywhere in the world, bring your daughter, come to one of my conferences, love to see her. He had counseled her for 20 minutes about what she was going through. And of course, I'm like, do you know who that was? I'm talking to my daughter. My daughter says, who's Tony Robbins? She didn't know because she's a millennial. Then she looked him up and she says, oh my God, you know, this is amazing. Now he still checks up on her. Why? Because he noticed, he heard, prepared to act, had the courage to risk it and acted without hesitation. He had the instinct, he knew this was not the first time he's been through this, and he had the scaffolding to build. He knew how to climb it. It was a structure not on the left side of that matrix. It's a structure he built on innovation. I mean, speaking in ethereal terms, but to build anything you want to build inside a company, you have to build another way to get there. 
If you follow the rules of the existing company, you're dead on arrival. So what's inside? Foresight, hindsight looking backwards, foresight looking forwards farther than two years, eyesight looking immediately. And then there's this thing that acts from the inside, that inner mind, that consciousness that allows you to say, all of my experience wrapped in this place generates a thought that creates Airbnb, that creates ideas that you cannot even imagine in construct. Innovators do not invent. Innovators take inventions and put them into a recipe that has never been done before and then executes within an 18-month period to produce it. That's what innovators do. Very practical. Insight is the weapon of the future. And what I ask you to do is exercise it all through these next three days. Take the data and the analysis for a second, halt it, because the machine will tell you. Use that instinct to interpret and start to practice that insight and make those experiments in your head with the courage to try. The other element is scaffolding. What does that mean when I say scaffolding? Build habits. Habit, habit, habit. Just keep doing small habits of insight generation and practice. Everything about innovation is practice. It is not the realm of a few. It is the responsibility of the many. It is not found in a few. It is practiced by a few. But if you practice it, and if you have children, you know if you practice with them, they will pick it up fast and they will start to think. By the way, about 14 is when they shut down and become rule followers. At about 14, they say, how do I get an A? And then they tried to get an A all through their lives. Did I do good, boss? And then they go to work finally and the work people say, think out of the box. And they go, I'm in one. What are you talking about? Out of the box. I live in the coffin you created for me. So try to create those habits. And I can talk to you in detail about that. People and ideas. I don't believe in ideas. I believe in people with ideas. It is the people that are the receptacle of ideas that strike them. Ideas don't belong to you. They visit you like butterflies. And when they do, you can choose to adopt them. You can choose to let the butterfly grow or you can just let them forget you. But your idea of not accepting them makes the difference between a person with an idea and a person without. They come and go. So realize that people are more important. And the other is have a process. I have something called I-5. And that process, you can pick your process. But my first eye is inspiration. Other people's first eye is investigation. And that's a fundamental difference. So I've spoken to you about those two. Let me end with one person I really admire. He's Dr. Balapadachandran. He was a professor with me at, I was adjunct, he's a real one, at Kellogg. I worked 20 years with him in teaching the classes and writing papers and engaging. In those 20 years, he was reaching that time where he was going to retire at 65. And he retired at 65. They gave him a cubicle from an office. You know what that happens when a university gives you a cubicle. They gave you a cubicle and he called me and he said, I don't like it here anymore. I need to do something else. I'm thinking, you're retired. Enjoy yourself. You've got such a gravitas in all the years you've been a professor. Well, the next month he calls me and said, hey, I'm going to start a university. I'm like, what? You're going to start a university? And being the innovator, I even failed him. I said, well, I know, Bala, come on. He said, I'm going to start it in a village in India where my mother was born. I'm going to start my village university there. Can you give me 25K? And I didn't give it to him. By the way, he sold his part of the business for multi-million dollars after 10 years. He built that university. It's called Great Lakes University. It produces significant amount of graduates in the MBA program. The second language is Chinese. He lives in India. And he's produced 100% higher rate from his students for the last 10 years. It's second to the second, the first most important university in India. And he built it in 10 years. He had the insight. Everybody told him he was going to fail. But his insight grew him. He had the moxie to make it happen. And he built a scaffolding. You can go and see the edifice of his thinking, right? But it's all there. 
That's what I want you to do. Why did I pick people versus organizations? Because there's many examples of organizational leaders. There are a few examples of people who build their own scaffolding and also generate their insight to make it happen. So I'm hoping that you see that for you to view this three days, you can view it as preparing for structural changes and understanding them. You can view it as, I'm going to choose the red or blue pill. And by the way, it's your life. You can choose one or the other. You know, I choose red all the time. I can choose insight and I can practice it every day. When you look at the stories that are being told, think of the stories of insight generation. What is the insight in this? How do I mechanize that? And then build the scaffolding. Say, if I'm going to take this idea, where do I maneuver it? To do this, you have to be crafty, not just craft person. You have to be crafty, not in a negative way. You need to know how to move in the climate that's given to you in organizations. And then, of course, please and always please handle fear because that is the one that inhibits all of us every day. I hope I've served you in this short time together, but if I have not, come and see me and tell me what you think. My pleasure. I knew you'd be an amazing speaker to get us going. Before you go, I have one question. Sure. Most of us are going to go back into a structured environment. Yes. What three take-home messages you have for us if we're trying to innovate within an organization or structure? It could be a big corporate, it could be even a small startup. I know I'm going to be sounding like the Deepak Chopra of innovation, but bear with me. One is I've realized after working multiple times in companies, building structures and building companies and convincing people with ROI and having a process and making sure you get the right business plan and all those other languages, there's one thing. First is you have to come to work. If you wake up in the morning and the first thing you think about is all the barriers that you're about to face, your entire level of physiology changes. You are already a victim of a fight. It's not a fight. You're going to win anyway. So get your mind ready for the day, which is, I don't know what you do, exercise, meditate, pray, whatever you want to do, but think of your success in a visual way. What is the end result of anything you're suggesting going to be? Because that's the question they're all all asking. The insight takes you farther than the eyesight or the foresight. If you have insight, you can see 10 years ahead. So that's the one. Number two, write down all the objections. And whenever one comes, just keep saying, bring it on. Yeah, tell me another one. Yeah, please tell me another one. Enjoy it. Enjoy it all. It's like, okay, come, keep bringing it. You know why? Every time someone's saying it to you, you are competitively better than them because you know that problem already. They are trying to bring it up as though it's a barrier. You're just looking at it and saying, this is great. I've seen this before. So I don't have to try to overtalk you because I just have to try to overmake you. Market makers create markets. Market followers respond to questions. So what I always do is before I even arrive to my boss, I already have a prototype. I didn't ask him I could spend the money. I just build it. And when they visualize something like ChatGPT, now all of a sudden everybody's awake. So visualize your product, show it, or get a customer to say, this is beautiful. That's the second. The third is, of course, recognize that you could be wrong. And a lot of times you are. And it's part of that experimentation. So listen carefully to the underlying momentum of what the person is saying to you. Don't reject for the rejection's sake. I've seen so many venture, I mean, you know this, right, Stefano? They come to you and they sell you on an idea. They want you to be an investor, blah, blah, blah. And they're so dogged about it and supposed to be positive, but actually they're not listening. And if they don't listen, they're like ChatGPT. Started September 21, not going to learn. There we go. Cheers. Three take-home messages. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. If you find the talks as incredibly informative and topical as we did, please do share this podcast with your friends 
and leave us a nice review on your podcast player of choice. It would mean a lot if you did. 